But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Please be seated. Good evening. I hope it is that you have gotten yourselves a, uh, a sheet that looks very similar to this. Uh, if not, the extras there on the back table. Please make sure you get one as we continue our study on Sunday evening. Seeing that scarlet thread. We picked it up first in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. And we've been following that thread as humanity has been uh, inching its way closer to the birth of Jesus Christ as you and I are reading it. We're finding more and more and more detail. Before we get to Micah, let me say something. As I was preaching this morning, um, sometimes the words I say are fast or they don't make a lot of sense. I've lived with that for a long time. And we had one student who was with us who was unclear on a, a point, so let me be as crystal clear as I possibly can. Are you ready? This would be under the idea of preaching Jesus Christ and His one church. There is one church that was set up by Jesus Christ. And the church that follows the pattern of the New Testament and submits itself to God is the only church recognized by God. My grandfather used to say it this way. I can stand in a garage and call myself a car. That doesn't make me one. We live in a world that, that a lot of places call themselves a church and while they don't meet those qualifications. And so the church I was speaking about this morning and, and the church I speak about out of the Bible is that one that is following what God says, the way God says do it, in order, as our dear brother Alan prayed just a moment ago, in order to hear. Well done. So we make it to the book of Micah this evening. The key words in Micah are here and judgment and restoration. And because I'm making this up, I get to assign whatever key verse I want to. And I think, as I read it, I think Micah 6 and verse number 8 is probably the best key we can find there. You could probably put in there Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. As a matter of fact, I hope you saw Jesus as that particular verse was being read. Where is he going to be born? That's a, that's a real easy question. Where's Jesus going to be born? Bethlehem. Where's it mentioned in this book? Right here, Micah 5, 2. Matter of fact, not only that, he's mentioned as being everlasting in that particular verse. The one that they're looking for is goings forth goes from everlasting. It, it mentions his deity right in that particular verse. The key phrase is the time is evil. The key chapters are 6 and 7. At the closing of this book, it's, it's almost like you're having the closing of a courtroom scene 
where, where judgment is pronounced or a sentence is pronounced. And uh, perhaps, perhaps you watch those court shows and you'll see those men and women who are accused and that, that sentence will be announced and they'll kind of stumble back a little bit. Their faces will drop. I guess they never assumed that verdict was coming. So here is Israel. That verdict is coming and it seemingly takes them off guard. Even though God has for five or six prophets now said, this is coming. This is going to happen. There's no way around this anymore. Time is too short. You can divide the book into three parts. Number one, God summons the people to hear. God summons the leaders to hear. And then three, God summons the mountains to hear. If the people won't hear and the leaders won't hear, God will appeal to the natural earth. Jesus would say if these men were to stop, even the rocks would cry out. When, when the Bible begins to appeal to the natural world to, to praise God, the, the idea here is that it, it's... It's, it's, just, it's just common sense. As you look at it, it's, that's obviously where it is. Man should be crying out to God. Micah deals with the social and spiritual decay of the day. God's concern with idolatry and spiritual wickedness was the producer of the decay. From chapter 1 to chapter 7, God continually lists the sins of the nation. He never forgot those because they never repented of those. And he was willing, he was willing to forget and move on, or forgive and move on. The book holds many prophetic statements of the coming church and the Christ. In Micah 1, 6 and 7, the destruction of Samaria was foretold. Archaeology shows that this city was so destroyed that the city was covered with stones. Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. The history of this time period is recorded in two places. That's first, or 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 27. Micah's name means who is like the Lord. Micah himself was a farmer and a preacher in a small village of Gath. Do you, uh, do you have certain images that come to your mind when you hear the word Gath or the, the city Gath? There was a big fellow from there. You remember him? He uh, went and fought David in a valley. Lost. Y'all remember him? Not only lost the battle, lost his head, by the way. He was a younger contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, he had great sympathy for the common people. Micah was not a popular preacher because the message that God would have him speak was not one that people wanted to hear. You can find anything online. You can answer any question online. As a matter of fact, I was talking to Reuben, this, Reuben Palmer this morning, and uh, I made a joke about looking on YouTube and figuring out how to, uh, I don't know, something, something he does, you know, like mechanical stuff. I don't do that. Uh, I just know people who do that. So I told him, I said, I can go on YouTube and figure it out. And he said, yeah, you think, you think that's how it is. You know, we can go and find just anything we want to find in seconds. Here's what I found at 5.15 this afternoon. In four, 43 one-hundredths of a second, there were 266 million answers to this particular question that I typed in. You ready? 
What does God require? What does God require? 266 million. It took me to get to page 17 before I found someone who mentioned anything about the Bible. Someone who mentioned just anything about the Bible. And so, as you and I look at the book of Micah, we want to study Micah chapter 6, verses 6, 7, and 8 this evening, and see if God requires the same thing then that He does now. The spoiler is this. He does. The spoiler goes all the way back to the garden. God requires the same thing from us that He required from Adam and Eve, and that is obedience. Now let's look at Micah chapter 6 and see if we can draw some, some, uh, some lessons from this particular book. We're in Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with... Ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Let's stop right there for a moment. It immediately makes us go back, hopefully in our minds, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, David's crying out for forgiveness from God, and he's longing to have the guilt that he still holds into himself pushed away. The sin has been forgiven by God. God has moved on. David has not. And so the guilt is still eating him alive. As a matter of fact, in verse uh, number 13, he said, then will I teach the transgressor how to do this or that. After I've made an atonement to you, then I will teach others. After I've taken care of myself, then will I do that. As a matter of fact, when you go down to about verse 17, 16, and 17, he says this. What does God want? Does he, does he want uh, all the, the, the burnt offerings I could give him? He says, no. If you wanted burnt offerings, if you wanted sacrifices, I'd give him that. I've got all those kinds of things. He goes on to say, God wants a contrite heart, a contrite spirit. And as we look at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Micah's asking the same question. What does God want? Does he, does he want us to give a, a thousand rams, a thousand animals for our sacrifice? Are you ready? Listen. If you stacked a thousand animals that God would have sacrificed and they were the perfect sacrifice, all 1,000 of them, it's still not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. Does he want 10,000 rivers of blood and oil? No, it's still not going to be enough. Can you imagine standing on that temple mount uh, on those days of atonement, Yom Kippur, when, when blood is just flowing through there, that ought to be enough to wash away the, the sin of the nation, right? 
Leviticus chapter 16 will tell us on that day when, when all of those things are happening that way and all of these animals are being sacrificed, it'll still be that high priest who grabs that scapegoat by the head and places all the sin of the nation on that scapegoat only to have him walk out the back door and out into the wilderness, never to come back again. And yet the next year on the exact same day, they do the exact same thing. Are a thousand animals not enough, God? Is 10,000 rivers of blood and oil not enough? To, to which Jesus or God would answer in the rhetorical question, it's not. Because it doesn't equal out. I, I want to say something to you in the world in which we live so that you will understand exactly what I'm saying. Are you ready? You... You, you individually, are more valuable than an animal or every animal. You are. Sometimes it is that we see those commercials, you know, the ones with the dogs. It makes you feel so bad for them. And you hear that song and that lady singing and you think, I wish I had some extra money. I'd send them to get all these dogs out of the rain. Our world tends to have us look and say these animals need to be taken care of more than people. You can't kill a bald eagle uh, egg, but you can kill a child. Is it not enough? Is, are 10,000 animals not enough? No, it's not enough because it's, it's not the same. The, the price will be paid when Jesus the Christ comes. Man for man, the price will be paid then. We're just holding a spot right here with oil and animals. We're just holding a spot. And so he moves on and says this, verse number 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? See, that's the question I ask. Now notice, notice the answer. He's going to give the answer right here. You ready? Do justly, love mercy, mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. You want to know what God requires from Adam until today? Here it is. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Those three things have absolutely nothing to do with a dispensation of time under which man lives, but everything with how man views God. Everything to do with that. Do justly. You know what that means? Let's, let's put this verse 8, Micah 6 verse 8, let's put this in just... Regular, plain, old Alabama language. Are you ready? I would say English, but we don't have much of that there. You ready? Here's what God requires. Do right things, show mercy, and have some humility. Let's start right there. Do the right thing. 
There are plenty of times in my life I can look back and say, I did not do the right thing here or there. I hate to burst your bubble on that. You, you know what my mindset needs to be, and I hope is, as we move forward to the next thing? Do the next thing right. I, I can't fix all of that. But I can do the next thing right. And then after that, I can do the next thing right. And I can continue down that right path to do justly before God. Turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse number 21. Man, I wish I'd have brought my little Bible up here. That's all right. If you look in the New Testament, you're trying to find where this would be found. Matthew chapter 7. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say there, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. If I'm going to do right, if I'm going to do the next right thing in the New Testament, when I do justly, I'm going to do justly toward God. You guys are secondary. All eight billion of us are se- or eight billion of us are, are secondary to me being right before God. Do justly. Where do I start that? At the source of justness. At the source of righteousness with God Himself. And when I've gotten that relationship squared away, then I can move to this relationship. This relationship won't work if that relationship isn't working. And so, if I'm going to fix what I've done with God, I need to fix what I've done with man too. Look at Ephesians chapter number 4 and about verse number 25. You know when you're accustomed to one particular Bible and you have to pick another one? It ain't on the right page. Look at verse number 25 here. Wherefore, putting away lying and speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not, lest the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather labor with his hands. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is holy and good to edifying, that it might minister grace unto the hearers. What's he giving us a list of right there in those four or five verses? How to live properly with man, honestly with man, to deal justly with man. What does God require of the New Testament Christian? Do justly, just as he did from that Old Testament child of God. Notice secondly, to love uh, mercy. In the New Testament, we find this same idea, James chapter 1. Let's start there. Love, mercy. James chapter 1. Pure religion. This is verse number 27. And undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widow and his affliction and keep himself unspotted from the world. Do you know who the two principal groups are that are mentioned within James chapter 1 and verse number 27? The widows, the orphans, 
those two groups, just as people, just as people, those two groups ought to pull at our heartstrings. Here's an older lady who needs some help. And her husband's passed away. Who's going to help her? I'm sure Mark will. I'll let him do that, right? Is that how, is that how we're going to handle that? I'm sure Heath will. I'll let him do that. Or do I see that need and do I meet it? Then we see the orphan who has no mother or father. And they have no guide. They should tug at our heartstrings. Who's going to help them understand what's right and what's wrong? Who's going to help them see the value of God's holy word? I'm sure somebody will. Please. Please, for the love of God and everything holy. Don't leave these groups to our own society to tell them what's right and wrong. Please, teach them what God says. So when we look at Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and we see one who loves mercy. We see one who loves mercy for the, the weak and the hurting of our, of our society. Look chapter Luke chapter 6. Let me show you another one. Luke chapter 6. To love mercy. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Here Jesus says something that... That makes me realize... He never knew anything at all about college football or basketball. Look at what he says. Love your enemies. We can be so divided over silliness in this world. Coming from a man who has watched a bunch of March Madness over the past few days and love it. We can become so divided over silliness that we literally turn from loving one another. Y'all might not know this living here in Arkansas, but there is a bitter rivalry in Alabama. So much so that those people won't sit with God's children known as Auburn fans, and they'll keep it separated, you know, in the church building. We can't even put those things down as we enter into the church building. And he's not even speaking about that. And notice what he says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, that your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he's kind unto the unthankful and the evil. Be therefore, unmer or be therefore merciful as your Father is also merciful. Brethren, we have to love mercy. And there's got to be something somewhere within our society that, that pulls at us where we want to teach the younger, the older, even our enemy this fact. God loves you. 
and doesn't want you to go to hell. There's a man, I've told you several times, who is a magician. He made a living at tricking the eye. Name is Penn Gillette. He is a well-known, well-known atheist. He is a well-known enemy of the church. Listen to the enemy's word for just a moment and see if he makes any kind of sense. He was speaking on the fact that uh, Christians under the blanket statement of Christian, would attend his show and not try to convert him. Here's what he said. What kind of hard-nosed, hateful person would look at another person that they know is bound to go to hell, a place where they would burn forever, and someone not try to convince them otherwise? I think he hit it. I think he's right. At what point do we see our society going to hell and we say, well, I guess that's what they choose? Does it break your heart? I often tell the girls, I wish you could have grown up in America. It was a great place. And the place my girls grew up is not the place I grew up. We don't have as much care and compassion anymore. We as a nation began to turn away from loving mercy. And perhaps we as a church follow right along with our nation. Do justly and what God requires. Love mercy is what God requires. And walk humbly. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse number 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us and offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, Look down at verse number 8. For ye were sometimes in darkness, but now ye are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now notice verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I wonder what God, through Paul's pen, is trying to remind me and urge me to do in Ephesians chapter 5. If it's not, walk humbly with God. Brethren, we should first of all be walking like the lights that we are. Let's back up on that statement for just a moment. We ought to be lights. You know, this little light of mine. Y'all know that one? Y'all have one of those? I know the young ones do. We ought to be lights. And then having that light, we ought to be able to walk out into a dark world and that light shine. 
and not walk out into the dark world and us go like this. It's still, it's still burning. But I don't want you to see it. I don't want to be seen as odd or different or inconsistent from what we expect normal, average Americans to be. Put your hand down, just be a Christian. Just walk humbly with God. What are you afraid of? You afraid of somebody's going to ask you what you should do or how they should act? Are you afraid somebody's going to ask you a Bible question? Are you afraid they're going to make an assumption that you maybe go to church somewhere sometime? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Sundays between 9 and 11 and 6 to 7 and Wednesday night 7 and 8. Other than that, this little light of mine, I'm going to stick it in my pocket. Walk humbly with him. Walk humbly with him. Notice verse number 8 here. As he writes this book in Ephesians, he says, sometimes you were darkness. Sometimes you had a past. And it was not bright. But your future's bright. So walk that way. Walk circumspectly of how you are now. Can you imagine? Could you imagine coming before the very bar of God as his child on the day of judgment? Standing before him, and according to first Peter or first John chapter two and verse two, one and two, having that defense attorney of Jesus right there by my side. Only to have Jesus say, I, I don't know this guy. And you look at him and say, hey, you don't know me. I, I, I was at church all of the time. I worked there when people were not even here. Look at this, look at this thing that I've done and that thing that I did for you and this thing and another. And he says to you, you were just another dark life. In a dark world, you didn't let your light shine. You didn't walk humbly. You didn't love mercy. You, you didn't do justly. That's the only thing he expects. The entirety of obedience to God is found in those three statements. Do justly. Do what he said to do. However he says to do it. If he says hear, hear what he says. Matthew chapter 13, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When he says believe, believe him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, for without faith it is impossible. If he says repent, do that. Walk justly or, or do justly and change what you're supposed to change. Jesus said, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. When he says confess, do that. How are you ever going to make it to God without the confession that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. When he says be baptized, do justly. Do that. Have your sins washed away. Stand before God covered in the blood of the Lamb and be justified. And from that point, start doing justly in your life and living out the Christian life. Doing that, you're going to see people around you who are in need. And the compassion has to turn on. When you see them in need and you go and, uh, I don't want to say help them, you go and, and take care of whatever need they have, guess what? You've just walked humbly. You've just walked humbly with God. You've just had your Christian light shining all out there so everybody can see it. And you have become a light. In a dark world. So I give you the same statement. That has been given to humanity. For some 600 years before Jesus was even born. Do justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. And maybe. Just maybe you need to walk humbly. Back home. If you do need to come back home, you have the opportunity now while we stand and sing for your encouragement. Jesus.